Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Kip Thorne is a Cache Valley native. He is a theoretical physicist and a Nobel laureate. He's known for his contributions to gravitational physics and astrophysics, longtime friend and colleague of Stephen Hawking and Carl Sagan. He is the Feynman Professor of Theoretical Physics Emeritus at California Institute of Technology, one of the world's leading experts on the astrophysical implications of Einstein's general theory of relativity. He continues to do scientific research and scientific consulting, and uh, you may have encountered him when he was a scientific advisor and executive producer for Christopher Nolan's film Interstellar. Kip Thorne is returning to Logan. Uh, tomorrow there is a lecture. It's free and open to the public. It's 4 p.m. at Logan High School Auditorium. Kip Thorne is uh, delivering that lecture titled My Journey Through Space and Time, The Big Bang, Black Holes, and Gravitational Waves. And then on Friday, 1 p.m., uh, Logan City is going to name a street in his honor. And uh, I think later this week, it's the Logan High School Class of 1958 reunion. And uh, Dr. Thorne, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here, Tom. Uh, so um, I want to start with your upbringing in Cache Valley and uh, specifically Logan High School. There, there's something about Logan High School. Two Nobel laureates now. Uh, Merlin Olson, uh, Quentin Cook, who's a high-ranking Mormon official. Um, something good going on at the school. Yes, well, we had a great class. Uh, Merlin and Quentin were uh, close friends of mine, and uh, there was a great camaraderie among us. And uh, I'm so sorry that Merlin is no longer with us and able to join our reunion, but I'm tremendously looking forward to the reunion with Quentin and my other classmates uh, later this week. Merlin Olson was a debate partner, I was reading. He was. Uh, we actually grew up playing in irrigation ditches with toads. Uh, I first <laughs> met him that way when I was about three years old. <laughs> and uh, we remained close friends. And in high school, we were debate partners, that's right. Yeah. Uh, you played the saxophone. Saxophone and clarinet. We had a, a dance band, a sort of a rock band in the early rock era. Uh, and... Uh, uh, Bruce Bishop, who's uh, played a big role in organizing our union, uh, played the piano, and uh, we had a great time. Yeah, Bruce Bishop, uh, I think, uh, dean of the College of Engineering for many years here yes. at the USU. Um, uh, so, uh, and even before that, um, I guess Logan's a good place to to grow up. You had access to uh, to a lot of things. Your your parents were both professors at USU. Yeah, well, my father was a professor. Am I? Mother was not allowed to teach there for many years because of nepotism laws that were put in in the 1930s and were not removed until, I think, around 1980. After the nepotism laws were uh, removed, uh, she uh, taught and uh, became a professor emeritus, although she was never officially a professor. Mm. And she did get an honorary degree from the university uh, for her uh, contribution to the community uh, in uh, 2000. Mm. Uh, do you do you recall when you first got interested in uh, physics or cosmology? Well, I was first got interested in astronomy at age eight when my mother took me to a lecture uh, uh, at uh, the Fifth Ward Church, uh, the MIA uh, gathering, and uh, a lecture about astronomy. And I was captivated by the idea of the solar system. And uh, then at age uh, thirteen, I picked up a book in a, a paperback book uh, called One, Two, Three, Infinity uh, by a, a cosmologist named George Gamov, who uh, later, uh, through much of his later career, was at uh, 
the University of Colorado in Boulder. And that book just captivated me uh, in terms of uh, seeing for the first time that the fundamental laws of nature uh, really control, determine how the universe behaves. And, uh, and so uh, the rest is history. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's what uh, sent me in this direction. That's right. You uh, At some point, you, you developed an interest in Caltech, I think, and, then, and that became the school you wanted to go to. Now, that's right. I uh, read an article in Time magazine uh, when I was about 14 about Caltech. It was a, a euphoric article. It just uh, described a wonderful place where if you were a student and you gave a wrong answer on an examination, but uh, you gave a good reason for that wrong answer, you could get a high mark. And I figured that kind of a place is a, a place for me. <laughs> that you could uh, you could have your own ideas, right? And and then you defend could have those your own ideas. ideas. Yeah. Uh, if if you showed an ability to think things through uh, in a uh, in a wise, uh, insightful uh, manner, uh, that counted for a lot. So you, uh, you you did go to undergrad at uh, Caltech over to Princeton for your graduate degrees. I think uh, you had an offer from University of Chicago, but uh... yeah. So when I, I came, I was at Princeton for my PhD, and then I went back to Caltech as a postdoctoral student. And this is uh, sort of what one does in in fields of science after getting a, a doctorate. You need further training, and so. I was a postdoctoral student, and uh, a, a colleague of mine, a professor at the University of Chicago, named Subramanian Chandra Sakar, East Indian Extraction. Chandra uh, arranged for an offer of professorship there, and uh, Caltech decided they wanted to keep me, and uh, so they matched it. Hmm. Um, you, uh, I was reading that um, you, you're an avid traveler, uh, ha- have been for a long time. So you were, well, first, uh, you're a professor, I think, by the age of 30. Uh, Yeah, yes. So not much older than some of your students. That's right. My my first uh, sets of students were quite close to my own age. Mm. Uh, And there's uh, a lot of uh, joy in being able to work hand-in-hand with students uh, in a manner where uh, they feel like uh, I'm one of them. Mm. At least I, I... thought they felt that way. Uh, and uh, and so we did some wonderful uh, things together. Uh, uh, for example, uh, with Bill Press, who uh, was one of my students, we uh, did the first real attempt to develop a vision for what would become gravitational wave astronomy. Mm. And uh, gravitational wave astronomy uh, eventually... Um, you know, LIGO and other, I guess LIGO specifically, is the reason for the uh, Nobel Prize. Uh, tell us um, about the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. So in 1972, Bill Press and I, uh, I think, realized that if it, it would be possible to uh, detect these gravitational waves predicted by Einstein, waves of a radically different sort than waves anyone had ever seen before, uh, that uh, they would bring us uh, information about parts of the universe that we have never been able to see, such as the birth of the universe at the very beginning and collisions of black holes. And uh, it appeared to me, it appeared to us that uh, this uh, 
would have the potential to revolutionize our understanding of the universe. And so uh, when I became then a little later convinced that this uh, had some possibility of succeeding, uh, that was through uh, discussions with experimenters, particularly Ray Weiss at MIT, who had invented a, a type of gravity wave detector that was what we ultimately built. Uh, I decided that I should devote to most of my career to trying to help these experimenters, uh, such as Weiss, pull it off. And so that's what I did. Uh, together we founded uh, this project called LIGO to build the kinds of de uh, gravity wave detectors that he conceived. Uh, we uh, pushed through a lot of R&D uh, to develop these detectors over a period of several decades. Uh, uh, the National Science Foundation funded this effort with taxpayer funds, for which we're tremendously grateful. And uh, we had a plan that we laid out in the early to mid-1980s, which came to fruition on a little slower timescale than we uh, had hoped for, but uh, not tremendously slower and it did reach fruition in 2015 with uh, the discovery of the gravitational waves that we were expecting to see. And so we now are, have this whole new way to observe the universe that we never had before. Is that the significance, a, a new way to observe the universe? What uh, The gravitational waves, I think, were predicted by Einstein, and as recently as 2015, we, we finally uh, get this uh, you know, d definitive detection. Yes, so in some sense it was a vindication of Einstein, but that was never the reason we did it. Mm. Uh, it, uh, it or the reason we did it was to be able to uh, probe the universe, to be able, uh, in due course we're not doing it yet, but to be able to observe uh, the birth of the universe, see waves that came from the very birth of the universe and use them to come to understand how the universe was born, mm. uh, to be able to uh, see phenomena in the universe <clears throat> that are not made from matter, like you and I, but instead are made from warped space and warped time. The black hole is the quintessential example of that. Um, so there's are aspects of the universe we just have no concept of, I'm quite sure, that uh, we will see with this new tool. Mm. The, so uh, obviously significant, two years after this uh, discovery, uh, the Nobel Prize. Um, how was that? That's That's got to be quite the experience. <laughs> well, I'll tell you the story of how, of how I, my, my conversations with the uh, head of the Nobel Committee. So uh, I got the call at 2.15 a.m. in the morning, October 3rd of, of last year, and uh, the voice on the other end said that uh, he was, uh, I think, the Secretary General of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences, which was in charge of the Physics Nobel Prize. And uh, he said, it will not surprise you that we are giving the Nobel Prize to you, to Ray Weiss, and to Barry Barish, who really created the LIGO project, organized it, and made it really happen after we had set the vision for how to do it. And I told him <clears throat> it didn't surprise me at all. It was pretty obvious it would come. But they had made a bad mistake, and I was very disappointed. The prize should have gone to the 1,000-member uh, LIGO team that pulled this off and not to the three individuals. It really was uh, the triumph of the team. And uh, 
they had made this mistake once before with the uh, Nobel Prize for what is called the Higgs boson, where it was the team that really pulled it off rather than a few individuals. And I told them that by now I would have thought they'd figured out how to do it, to give it to the team. <laughs> so he said, we'll have a conversation about this when you're in Stockholm. <laughs> so we did. Uh, and uh, anyway, it's a complicated story. I think they they will get it right someday, but uh, they're, uh, they're members of the committee. They're quite resistant to the idea of giving it to teams. Yeah, but that's how science works, isn't it? You know, teams, and so maybe that's the way it should go. Well, that's how, that's how some of science works. Uh, certain things, such as uh, LIGO, can only be done by large teams, uh, superb teams, and. Uh, other things are done by individuals, continue to be done by individuals, and I think it's important. The Nobel Prize is something that uh, is given by uh, the folks in Sweden with the goal of uh, trying to promote science and educate the public about science. And what they're not doing, I think, and uh, where I think they're failing is failing to educate the public about the uh, range of different ways that science is done. There's certain science, kinds of science have to be done the way we, d- we did with LIGO, and it's the team that deserves uh, the uh, the prestige of the prize. Other kinds of science uh, are done by individuals, and, uh, and this this uh, is, a, is how science works uh, in the modern era. Mm. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have more with uh, Kip Thorne. Uh, he is uh, coming back to Logan. He's a Logan native, and uh, he'll, he'll give a lecture at Logan High School. That is tomorrow, Thursday, 4 p.m. It's free and open to the uh, public. And uh, that lecture is uh, titled, My Journey Through Space and Time, The Big Bang, Black Holes, and Gravitational Waves. Uh, then on Friday, uh, Logan City is going to name a street after Kip Thorne. They'll be near the, uh, the, the family homestead, I think, right, Kip Thorne? That's right. Which is uh, 4th East and the Boulevard. Yes, it, it's the Boulevard. It, I, I grew up, well, at least uh, up uh, up until I was about 11 years old, uh, at a home that was right on the edge of the Boulevard. Yeah, so it's going to be Kipthorne Boulevard uh, now. Um, and uh, the, I guess the... Pers- I, 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 I think you're allowed to call it the Boulevard. You don't have to stick the Kip Thorne in there all the time. Okay, all right. In, in fact, even officially, I think it is going to retain the name of the Boulevard, uh, at least in some sense. Right. Well, uh, you know, I, I think there is a lot of respect for the Nobel Prize and for all the accomplishments. Um, there's a there's a Lars Hansen Drive now near the university, so should be a Kip Thorne uh, Boulevard. Um, but we'll, yeah, we'll continue to call it the Boulevard. Um, so more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Moab Free Concert Series, presenting live music every Friday in July. I draw slow from Dublin, Ireland, rocking at Swanee City Park on July 21st. Farmers Market, food vendors, artisans, beer, and dancing, 4.30 to 8 o'clock p.m. Details at moabfreeconcerts.com. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. 
Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state. Musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and everything else. Go online to our user-friendly submission page at upr.org, click on the community calendar link, and review the submission guidelines. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we're very pleased to have with us for the hour, Kip Thorne. Uh, he is a theoretical physicist, Nobel laureate. He is um, a professor at uh, Caltech Emeritus, Feynman Professor of Theoretical Physics Emeritus at Caltech. One of the world's leading experts on astrophysical implications of Einstein's general theory of relativity, continues to do scientific research and scientific consulting. Uh, you uh, may have been aware of him, well, many things, but uh, for the film Interstellar um, as well. Um, I want to talk about Interstellar. I want to talk about um, Stephen Hawking and a few other things, uh, Kip Thorne. Uh, I want to start with, I, I learned, reading this uh, article from the Herald Journal, you did an interview with them, um, you, you've had a fascination, fascination over many years with Russia, traveled many times to Russia. Yeah, the key thing about Russia for me was that uh, in the era when I was uh, embarking on my career, uh, by far the strongest uh, senders for physics were in Moscow, Russia, uh, in the United States, and in England. Uh, Stephen Hawking in England, uh, the group of Yakov Borisovich Zeldovich in uh, Russia, and then several different centers around the United States. And so for me, it, uh, it was really important to reach out to uh, the Russians who were working in my field and build collaborations so that we could promote, uh, we could accelerate uh, the push to understand uh, the universe around us uh, through collaborative work. And uh, so that's what I did. The physics community that uh, transcends national boundaries, of course, right? It, yes, indeed. Uh, so what were your observations then? You, uh, many years, I guess, the, you, you started going when it was the Soviet Union, and you saw the collapse of the Soviet Union, and uh, I guess now Russia today. Yeah, so physics in uh, there was very strong in the Soviet era. Uh, but it, there was, of course, a pent-up desire for uh, the freedom to travel to the West, uh, and... Uh, so uh, when the Soviet Union crumbled in uh, 1991, uh, my younger colleagues almost all traveled to the West and moved to the West. Uh, uh, they found that it was an era when it was very hard to do science in Russia. You had to spend so much time in the 1990s just dealing with everyday life because of everything that was crumbling around you. And uh, my uh, friends, they wanted to do science, and they had opportunities to do science in, in Europe, Australia, and the United States, Canada. And so, so that's where they moved. And uh, physics was lar largely but not completely decimated uh, in uh, the old Soviet Union and uh, has still not recovered. So there is still is some uh, amount of really strong physics done there, but it's a pale, uh, it's a small amount compared to what it was in the Soviet era. So I basically cut way back on my travel to uh, this, to Russia after the crumbling of the Soviet Union. I, during the Soviet era, from 1968, when I made my first trip onward, until 1991, I spent on average about a month every other year there. I would go over 
stay for a month, uh, six weeks, uh, and uh, collaborate on research with my Russian colleagues. Uh, and they would come west and, and work with me. Uh, and since then, I think it's probably once every four years that I, I go to uh, Russia to interact with them. I'm, I'm going this autumn, but only for two days, unfortunately, mm. but just to keep up with close friends who are ailing in health. I don't know if you want to get into politics at all, or comment on the recent <laughs> uproar, the press conference between President uh, Trump and uh, and uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, I don't think that okay. requires any discussion. I, okay. Uh, I'm just aghast by the situation. I'll, yeah. Let me just leave it at that. Okay. Um, I, I think you would. I think you would agree. You were influenced by um, uh, books to general audience by a scientist. You have written such books. Um, uh, I wonder what you'd say about the. I don't know if it's a responsibility, but the the opportunity that scientists such as yourself have to reach out to the general public. I think it's tremendously important. The science is for a number of reasons. I think, first, science is crucial to the future of the human race and to solving many of our problems today. And that means not simply that we need to have a continuing strong science, but we need for uh, people who are not scientists to understand science, appreciate it, appreciate its strengths, uh, what it can do for us, appreciate its limitations. Uh, because uh, decisions have to be made at the political level uh, uh, and at the community level uh, about uh, uh, technical issues uh, where science is a big component of making those decisions. And, and uh, so a large, <coughs> large fraction of the population in one way or another is involved in those decisions. And uh, so that's one reason. I think another reason is that uh, we are all born... Excuse me. <coughs> We're all born with uh, uh, curiosity, and uh, the point of science is to satisfy that curiosity about the nature of the universe around us, the na- nature of the world we live in. And uh, so the scientific enterprise, as I pursue it, trying to understand the universe, uh, is an enterprise that is a continuation of uh, what I think we all uh, were trying to do as very small children. And uh, I believe that we scientists who work on this uh, have, in some deep sense, a, a moral, ethical uh, responsibility to uh, share what we learn uh, with uh, with everybody. Uh, it's just wonderful. It's so exciting what what we've been learning about the universe. And, uh, it, and so, what, another way to say this is the following: that when uh, you and I look back on the era of the Renaissance uh, and ask what was it that our ancestors gave us from that era. I think there's a general agreement. It's uh, great art, great architecture, uh, the uh, scientific method, great music. Uh, and uh, when our descendants look back, say, three, 400 years in the future, when they look back on our era, what are they going to say was our greatest contribution to them? I think part of that is going to be an understanding of the universe around us and an understanding of the laws of nature that make the universe behave the way it does. And this is the quest of the human race, not just of those few of us who are deeply involved in it, but a quest of the human race to, 
to find that out and give that uh, uh, to all of society uh, for, uh, and our descendants. And I think uh, you know, physics, theoretical physics, uh, is is a great opportunity to engage with public because it's uh, it really captures the, the public's imagination, right? You talk about black holes and time warps and uh, and these things. It really does fire the imagination. Uh, you you've talked about this. I wonder if we treat this now. Um, I was watching an interview with you on on YouTube, and you've treated this other other places. Uh, possibility of backwards time travel is it? Is is that theoretically possible? This is something I did spend a few years <clears throat> working on, trying to understand, uh, together with colleagues and students. Uh, and uh, the bottom line, in the end, and, and, and let me let me say, this is also something that my uh, close friend Stephen Hawking tried to understand. And the two of us debated this uh, over a period of a few years, and uh, in the end, I think we came to to agree that probably backward time travel is uh, forbidden by the laws of nature, but we aren't completely sure. And uh, uh, probably if you ever develop the technology where uh, you are on the verge of being being able to make a time machine that goes backward in time, it will self-destruct at the moment you try to activate it. Uh, And we understand the mechanism by which it uh, would self-destruct, we think. But we're not 100% sure of that conclusion. And uh, the, what we ultimately came to agree on, Stephen and I, was that uh, the answer as to whether time machines always self-destruct is held tightly in the grips of a set of physical laws that we don't yet fully comprehend. These are called the laws of quantum gravity. Uh, they are laws that arise from uh, some sort of marriage uh, combination of quantum physics and Einstein's relativity. These are the laws that also control, uh, governed the birth of the universe and the laws that uh, govern what happens inside black holes. And we believe, Stephen and I, that it, uh, they govern whether or not you can make a time machine go backward in time. Hmm. Uh, those laws are the holy grail of theoretical physicists, of people who are far smarter than I am. I never, ever worked on that topic uh, because it's so crowded. I wanted elbow room and because the people working on it were a lot smarter than I am. But uh, they, they are the holy grail, and I think they are likely to be well in hand, well understood within the next several decades. And then we will get uh, definitive answers as to whether you can go backward in time, as to what... Uh, how the universe was born, the physical mechanisms of the birth of the universe, and uh, as to what happens at the core of black holes. That's uh, that's incredible. You you think uh, that we'll have those answers in the next few decades? I do. Mm-hmm. I do. I, I see real progress being made. Um, now, I think my my colleagues always point to me as an optimist, and so if I see the next sec- several decades, I could be overly optimistic, but I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. We do live in exciting times, don't we? Uh, I think sometimes we, <laughs> we become inured, if that's possible, to all of the great discoveries happening, but it, it is, is exciting. Yes, indeed. In, in many, many different areas. I mean, I work in one narrow area that uh, creates a lot of public excitement, but there are so many other areas that... Uh, are similarly exciting, from uh, biotechnology, uh, uh, technology, science on the nanoscale, very, very small uh, scales, uh, 
and uh, and so forth. Uh, computer science, artificial intelligence. Uh, it's uh, just a tremendously exciting era to uh, to be in, and offers tremendous opportunities for young people who are contemplating uh, careers in science and technology. And at the same time, some parts of science are becoming politicized. People are rejecting uh, scientific uh, consensus. Uh, I don't know, does that worry you? It worries me a lot, and I think it is an indication that we have not done an adequate job of of uh, educating people broadly about about science. Um, it's it's a worrisome because the issues that we have to face, uh, such as climate change, are tremendously big issues. <clears throat> They're issues that are going to affect uh, the lives of our children, our grandchildren, and their grandchildren. Uh, it affects them in, hugely. And uh, we ne- really need to deal with uh, with cli- climate change, is, is my example, uh, and be dealing with it today. And uh, when, uh, for ideological reasons, uh, we fail to do so, we are uh, condemning uh, our grandchildren, their grandchildren, to a much more difficult life. Uh, what's the uh, What's the most fascinating problem that that, that that's um that's got you fascinated right now in physics or, or anything else. Uh, what's, what's the horizon that's got you the most excited? Well, it's areas I'm not actually working in, but uh, areas that, the area that is a fallout uh, future of gravitational wave observations, it is this question of the birth of the universe, how the universe came into being, uh, the physical mechanism for it, whether there are is more than one universe, uh, are there many universes uh, that uh, were born, or the connections between these universes? These are questions that we don't know how to answer yet, but we will uh, can begin to get some glimmering uh, of answers as uh, the uh, as uh, we get some uh, tentative understanding of these laws of quantum gravity that that control the answers. So that, for me, is the most exciting direction, and and uh, the fact that, and I and it is a fact that uh, gravitational wave observations. Uh, th- let me start over again. The gravitational waves, these waves that uh, we uh, are now observing uh, and using to explore the universe, that these waves are so penetrating that they can be created, were created at the birth of the universe, uh, and can and bring us uh, detailed information about the birth, uh, that they are penetrating, that they don't get absorbed or scattered by matter, and the universe is very young, very, very hot, very, very dense, but instead they bring the information right out to us. Uh, that uh, uh, makes me expect with confidence that... Uh, this will be a joint theoretical observational effort, understanding the birth of the universe. We will have the observational data. With improved observational data, what do you think we'll find? What's what's your theory? <laughs> I think my, my expectation is we will find that uh, physicists' current views are quite wrong. So physicists have a... Uh, the best theoretical physicists think they understand this, uh, and... Uh, I've seen uh, on a handful of occasions uh, cherished uh, expectations turn out to be quite wrong uh, when uh, the observational data came in. 
Uh, so what we will learn, I don't know. But uh, I hope, and I think it likely, that we will discover that uh, things are quite different than we have, that we physicists have been expecting. If you just joined us, we're uh, talking with the renowned physicist uh, Kip Thorne. He's a Nobel laureate. He is a Logan native, uh, and he's coming back to Logan. Um, he's giving a lecture, Logan High School. Uh, that is tomorrow, Thursday, 4 p.m. That's free and open to the public, and uh, they're going to name a street after him. The uh, ceremony is Friday at 1 p.m., and it's the Logan High School Class of 1958 reunion uh, coming up this uh, weekend. Um, so we have Kip Thorne for another about 15 minutes or so. If you would like to email a question or comment in, we'd love to uh, receive that to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com, or you can call us to 800-826-1495. Uh, let's take another break. Kip Thorne, I want to talk about interstellar, uh, which I understand started, you, 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 uh, uh, wrote the original treatment with, a, I guess, a friend of yours. Um, then it became the the film uh, directed by Christopher Nolan. I want to talk about that. And uh, I'd like to get into talking a little bit about uh, your book, Black Holes and Time Warps, Einstein's Outrageous Legacy. Much more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Festival in Logan, Utah, with Into the Woods now through August 3rd. Once upon a time, a baker and his wife search for ingredients to lift a witch's curse. Along the way, they meet Cinderella, Little Red Riding Hood, Rapunzel, Jack, and others. Info and tickets at utahfestival.org. Utah Public Radio's newest show began in the line at a university coffee shop. Standing before me was a historian. Behind me, there was a physicist. And as we waited to order, we solved all of the world's problems. We'd like to create more situations like that. So each week... We're going to introduce you to two scientists working on very different issues. And then we're going to introduce them to each other. That's Undisciplined. Fridays at 2. Hi, I'm Rihanna Gale, science reporter for Utah Public Radio. Part of my job here at UPR is to bring you fun and engaging stories from the science world. If you've got a question, we'd love to answer it. Please visit our website at upr.org or call us at one 800 826 1495. You can also share ideas with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just be sure to include the hashtag IMUPR. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Kip Thorne. He is a theoretical physicist. He is Feynman Professor of Theoretical Physics Emeritus at Caltech and one of the leading's, uh, world's leading experts on astrophysical implications of Einstein's general theory of relativity. Um, he is, uh, of course, a leading uh, physicist and a, a Cache Valley native. Um, Logan is uh, proud to claim him. He's coming back to Logan for several events. He's giving a lecture uh, tomorrow. It's titled, uh, My Journey Through Space and Time, The Big Bang, Black Holes, and Gravitational Waves. It's free and open to the public. It's at Logan High School Auditorium. Uh, tomorrow, Thursday, 4 p.m. I'm going to name, name a street after Kip Thorne. Uh, that ceremony is Friday at 1 p.m. Uh, in Logan, and it's the Logan High School Class of 1958 reunion uh, coming up this weekend uh, as well. 
so, uh, Kip Thorne, we have an email has come in. Uh, this is from Steve. I'll read this and then get your comment on this. You can email us as well, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can call us to 800-826-1495. Here's what Steve says. Last week it was announced that in September of last year, a neutrino, which hit a collector near Antarctica, confirmed the existence of blazars, uh, giant spinning black holes at the center of uh, some galaxies, and that the neutrino itself had traveled billions of light years. Like gravity waves, which your guests theorized and confirmed, neutrinos come from far away and reveal things about our universe that we could never know from visible light or electromagnetic waves alone. I recently read the book, says Steve, The Neutrino Hunters by Ray uh, uh, Jaya Wardana, professor at uh, York University. I took from his book the impression that scientists gather information by accretion of neutrinos hitting some spot on planet Earth. Neutrinos, after all, have virtually no mass. Yet this one tiny space particle alone hitting the ice cube collector near Antarctica revealed an extraordinary amount, and I wonder if your guests can help us understand how one tiny little neutrino by itself could reveal so much information. Evidently, the fact that this particular neutrino collided with another particle had something to do with it. Uh, Thanks, says Steve. I think the key question that uh, we have had uh, as astrophysicists uh, in this area is, uh, where are very high-energy neutrinos and other very high-energy particles, where are they accelerated? Where do they come from? Uh, and there are various ideas about where they come from, and it may be from several different kinds of mechanisms. Uh, but this one neutrino, because it, it was possible to trace back where it came from uh, so precisely, with the aid of also electromagnetic observations, uh, this one neutrino and this associated uh, electromagnetic observations uh, told us that this was coming from the core of a particular kind of a galaxy called a blazar uh, with a black hole in its center, and that the black hole uh, then was presumably responsible uh, for the generation of these very high-energy particles. And so it was the first really definitive uh, evidence, uh, as I understand it, that that, that is where at least some of these ultra-high-energy particles come from. I guess this is the reason we need, uh, in some cases, new observational techniques. A neutrino, virtually no mass. and, uh, and yet Virtually over... no mass. So, and another great mystery with which uh, uh, astrophysicists have been struggling ever since I was a student and made only modest progress is uh, how are supernovae generated. Supernovae are the uh, biggest explosions that we see with light, uh, uh, aside from the Big Bang itself. Uh, they were first really identified as phenomena in the early 1930s. And uh, when I was a student, uh, it, uh, people, <coughs> well, already in the 1930s, Fritz Wicke had correctly uh, speculated that they uh, these supernova explosions were triggered when normal stars exhaust their nuclear fuel, implode, produce something called a neutron star, and release a huge amount of energy in that implosion, that gravitational implosion. That energy somehow causes a huge explosion. How the implosion gets converted into an explosion has been the big mystery. And uh, in order to really answer that, uh, we need both computer simulations together with observations, and observations with Uh, with kinds of radiation that can come from deep inside a collapsed star. And there are just two kinds of radiation that are so penetrating they can get out. 
gravitational waves and neutrinos. Uh, neutrinos have been seen from one supernova explosion uh, in uh, uh, what was called Supernova 1987A, which was in uh, a satellite galaxy of our own, a Magellanic Cloud. Uh, we expect now that we have gravitational wave detectors on the air that uh, we would likely have seen gravitational waves as well as neutrinos from that uh, particular supernova. And we look forward eagerly to the combined observations with neutrinos and gravitational waves of what's going on in the cores of these supernova explosions. Uh, the, those combined observations should tell us a lot about how this implosion gets converted into an explosion, one of the uh, big mysteries that astronomers struggle with. Mm. Here's a, another question that's come in. EJ in Providence um, sent this question in. Uh, I recently heard there's a fifth wave of nature that includes the ozone. I was wondering what uh, Kip Thorne thinks of that. I don't know what that's referring to, I'm afraid. Mm. Okay. Um, I mean, the, the ozone uh, layer of the Earth is a crucial layer that uh, protects us from, uh, uh, from radiation coming in from space. Uh, and uh, is important uh, to to geophysics, uh, but uh, I don't know what this refers to explicitly. Okay. Well, EJ, if you'd like to, uh, you could email us and uh, clarify that, perhaps, um, uh, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'd love to get your um, email, upraxcess at gmail.com. We have uh, Kip Thorne with us. Um, uh, for oh another ten minutes, and uh, you could you could call us eight hundred eight two six one four nine five eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. I want to have you talk a little bit about your friend Stephen Hawking. Uh, for example, I was uh, watching uh, an interview with you. Uh, you say you spent time just about every year. He would come to uh, Pasadena, right? You would go to England when he would come to Pasadena. Your social life would really ramp up. People wanted to people wanted to interact with him. Uh, and he wanted to interact with people. Uh, he uh, was a very social animal. He loved to go to parties. Uh, he loved to throw parties. He and, and, and his entourage of caregivers. Uh, and uh, uh, and I'm much more of an introvert. Uh, and uh, so I sit at home and uh, quietly, except when Stephen was in town, and we would go out and party. <laughs> what what did um you know we've had a lot of remembrances of course um what did uh, why did he fire the public imagination so much do you do you think he he was well, I think the public imagination of course was fired as he himself says by the uh, this uh, combination of uh, his brilliant uh, work in the face of uh, severe physical disability Though he would also say, and I completely agree, to some some to some to some degree, uh, it was because of his physical disabilities. So he uh, gradually lost the use of his hands due to his motor neuron disease, a variant of uh, ALS. Uh, gradually lost the use of his hands uh, in the early 1970s, in a period when he was spending a year at Caltech. And as he uh, lost the use of his hands, he could no longer write down equations, stare at them, and then continue on to the next equation. And that's crucial for people doing physics uh, because uh, mathematics is the language of physics. So he had to compensate in some way, and what he did do uh, was brilliant. He uh, figured out ways to convert uh, certain pieces of mathematics that were crucial for relativity 
uh, into geometrical pictures that he could ma- manipulate in his head, and topological pictures he could ma- manipulate in his head, curves and surfaces uh, uh, that uh, uh, would change shape, uh, uh, reconnect in various ways. And uh, he developed this to such a fine degree that uh, certain pieces of physics he could do far more insightfully, uh, more efficiently than those of us who did it on pencil and paper, just in his mind. And so uh, that was uh, taking adversity and turning it on his head, uh, turning it and. And it was with this uh, new way of thinking that he was able to make some of his greatest uh, breakthroughs. Mm. How would he want to be most want to be remembered? Do you think, Stephen? Uh, I he has probably told us, and I'm not sure, but uh, I I would guess that he would most want to be remembered uh, for the insights he gave us about uh, the early universe and black holes, about the birth of the universe, how the structure of the universe came about, how uh, the, where the seeds uh, came from that gave rise to galaxies and stars and planets. Uh, but uh, I think he also would like to be remembered as an example of... Uh, uh, what can be done in the face of uh, disability? That uh, he he uh, worked very hard during his life to inspire other people with disability to uh, to uh, uh, move forward uh, and do uh, be active and do interesting, important things uh, despite it. You said something very interesting in an interview I was watching. Um, I think this was about on Interstellar, um, and, and so after this question, we'll get into Interstellar. You said that intuition is very important for for scientists, and we um, it can be counterintuitive—no pun intended—there to some of us that we're you know you're crunching through equations, but that these these uh, through intuition you can make uh, big leaps that are very important. And you do need to make big leaps in order to uh, uh, guide the calculations that you do if. You need to make an informed guess as to what's going on far beyond the boundary of current knowledge in order then to sit down with the mathematics and uh, work things out in that particular direction to see whether the informed guess is correct to flesh it out. And that informed guess comes from intuition. So intuition uh, for a... A theoretical physicist like I am, intuition is as important as calculation. Uh, And to really do great work, you have to have both. Mm. I want to talk about Interstellar. Uh, The the one-sentence description on IMDb, if you haven't seen the film, a team of explorers travel through a wormhole in space in an attempt to ensure humanity's survival. Uh, The stars are Matthew McConaughey, Anne Hathaway, uh, Jessica Chastain. And the director, uh, Christopher Nolan, um, but uh, it, people might think this initiated with uh, Christopher Nolan. It did not, right? This, this the initiating idea was came from you, right? Well, it came from Linda Opes and me. L- Linda mm. is a uh, movie producer in Hollywood who's a close friend of mine and my wife's, and uh, she uh, was a science editor for the New York Times before she went to Hollywood, and a. Uh, had worked closely with Carl Sagan in the era when they were 
making the uh, disk that contained large amounts of human knowledge and culture that went, went with the Voyager spacecraft out beyond the solar system. So she was involved in that. So she and I conceived the uh, idea of this film. Uh, we wrote what's called a treatment uh, that uh, laid out the basic story, but more importantly, <coughs> it laid out science, <coughs> excuse me, science that would be integrated into the movie. And that science, uh, uh, integrating that science into the movie was uh, very unusual in Hollywood uh, to do that at the very beginning. And so that's what we did. And then she brought on the Nolan brothers to write and direct the movie. The Nolan brothers, Christopher Nolan and his brother, Jonathan Nolan, uh, they changed the story almost completely. But the basic uh, story is the same, but the details uh, are radically changed. And so this is really their movie in terms of the story. But they preserved all the science and how it was integrated into the story. And then in brainstorming with me, I uh, fleshed out, out the science and brought in a lot more science. So that's how the movie came to be. So then you had the idea that the Nolan Brothers came on and changed the story but preserved science. But that must have been a fascinating process of now collaboration, right? To this, you, they, they're, them checking with you on the science and then perhaps you having to, to explore different areas as they needed more science for changes in the story? That's right. It was true collaboration in the sense that we would brainstorm together. And they brought a, a level of creativity that was quite remarkable and an ability to, to ask questions that I would have to go think about overnight or maybe over several nights uh, to come up with good answers. Uh, and then we would go back and forth on these answers and and something really wonderful would come out. And, uh, so that creative process of brains, joint brainstorming with people who are have very different backgrounds than I have uh, it is one of the most joyous things that I, I've done in my uh, career. And this a great platform, right? Because many more people have seen and will see this movie than perhaps would be able to be in a classroom with you. <laughs> yes, many more. I, I estimate they sold roughly 100 million tickets, uh, largely in Asia, uh, but a lot in the U.S. as well. We're used. And, uh, there's there's no, no way that I, as a little Caltech professor, would ever reach out to anything like that number of people in uh, no other way except this way. Were you, were you satisfied with the, the movie, how it came out, especially the science? I was very pleased with it. I, I was very pleased. Yeah. Uh, we just have uh, about a minute left. I want to bring this back to, to Logan. And by the way, uh, Kip Thorne will be uh, giving a lecture. It's free and open to the public. He's returning to his uh, native Logan. Uh, the lecture is called My Journey Through Space and Time, The Big Bang, Black Holes, and Gravitational Waves. That's free and open to the public, as I said. 4 p.m. tomorrow, Thursday, Logan High School Auditorium, Kip Thorne is a Logan High School graduate, uh, class of 1958, and that reunion is happening this uh, this weekend. So uh, my question, final question is, what what would your message be to the to the current the uh, class, uh, current students at Logan High? Uh, I think uh, I would say that uh, science and technology are wonderful directions to pursue a career if you have any interest in those directions. Uh, if you want to do really interesting and great things uh, uh, with science and technology, 
you have to be very dedicated, and you have in the end you have to work awfully hard. And that's really only possible if you love what you're doing. This is a message that I got from my grandfather, my mother's father, Grandpa Komish, I called him. Uh, he said, told me when I was four years old, he said, if you find a job that uh, is like play when you grow up, you will have succeeded. And I did succeed in that sense. And I think there's something very deep about that advice. Uh, things that are really worth doing are usually very hard. And if you're going to do them really well, you really need to enjoy them. Well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Kip Thorne. Thank you. A pleasure. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Um, and uh, we thank you for uh, for tuning in. Um, uh, we have a parting shot from Steve, who's emailed us back in. Just to note that in addition to the number of tickets sold for seats in the theaters, the movie uh, Interstellar is also streamed, so millions more, uh, and so in that way, including me, he says, uh, Steve, talking about the movie Interstellar. Um, and uh, we thank Kip Thorne. We thank you for listening to Access Utah today. <laughs> Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time on Utah Public Radio. If you enjoy tuning into my program Sunday nights, then come join me at UPR's upcoming events, Blues, Brews, and Barbecue on July 29th. We'll listen to music from Nora Barlow and the Sammy Hickson Blues Band with Jim Schaub and Doug Jones. Come enjoy the evening with me and the rest of the UPR crew. And at the end of the night, get dropped off anywhere in Cache Valley from a complimentary ride service. Head to upr.org for more details and to get your tickets. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.